All right. Well, I had some, some really, uh, some confirmation in the things that were going on tonight on the things I'm going to be speaking on. And so um, I'm, I am going to pray because I really want to, to get the Lord's heart on this, his words, and his understanding. So, Father, we just lift up this time to you, and I ask you for your anointing for teaching. I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your word and that you would express yourself through me in a way where we can take hold of that and we can move forward. Uh, we are a people who are willing uh, to be obedient. Help us and teach us, Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So, um, I'm going to move a little closer here. In, in 2005... Um, Ridley Scott produced a movie uh, starring Orlando Bloom. It was a guy flick. You probably have seen it. It's entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And it was about, oh, you know, the, the time in the, in the 12th century when Jerusalem was under such incredible attack. And I was intrigued by the title, The Kingdom of Heaven. So I went with great expectations. And um, the movie was really entertaining, but it wasn't exactly accurate. And so... I must have seen that movie four times over the last few years. And as it unfolds, it becomes apparent that they, what they depicted as the kingdom of heaven was inaccurate, at least in two places, two points and perspectives. One was the historical representation was wrong, but also the representation of the kingdom of heaven was inaccurate. And I think we ought to look at the Bible and just see what was understood there, because what they were coming to understand was that the kingdom of heaven was a place, it was a geographical place where Jesus would return and it needed to be taken by force and held. Uh, by the way, the Saracens also believed that about the prophet that's coming. In the same place, they also believed that it needed to be taken by force and held until the prophet came for their resurrection period or whatever they termed that. So... Uh, honestly, I came away feeling that the title had betrayed the message completely. And so I'm going to be using two terms here, tonight, uh, actually three. I'm going to talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God synonymously because Jesus did. And so that's okay with me if it's okay with you if he did that. So I just want to um, go back to many ways what we are presented with in this concept of the kingdom are two seasons. And... Um, in order to understand the backdrop of this, I'm going to quote to you uh, some scripture that Jesus used. Um, historically, the kingdom was seen as something that was um, now and not yet. The Jewish people saw it as the kingdom to come, the not yet kingdom. And, uh, but Jesus depicts it some, somewhat differently in the Bible. I'm going to read to you from Luke 16. This is in verse 16, if you want to follow along. This is from the translation, the Passion Translation. So it may be a little different than what you have, but it's going to give a good uh, context for where we're going with this. So he, he describes two distinct periods in history. Are we good? Okay. I thought you were motioning me. So we were, we, he described, describes two different periods of history. One, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... And since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. So there was a period called the Law and the Prophets. John, the Baptist, is seen as the bridge between the Law and the Prophets, which is the old, and the new, which is now this kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. John is the transition in that period. So the purposes of our study tonight, 
because our Western minds do not uh, identify with the word kingdom, I'm going to use the rule of God. And maybe that'll help us to understand a little better. When, he asked, when asked by his, princi- his disciples about how to pray, Jesus responded with these words. Pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that was his beginning, his um, opening lines when he began to teach periodically after that about the kingdom of God. He also used, um, when he was, did his teachings, he used what we call parables, uh, which were pic- pictures and visions of, of a, a theme or something. In Luke 21, he's, he goes to, begins to describe the kingdom that was to come, and he gave this disciple to his parables. Haven't you observed the fig tree or any tree that when it buds and blooms, you realize that the season is changing? And summer is near. In the same way, when you see the prophetic signs occurring, you realize, now this is important language, you realize that the earth is yielding to the fullness of God's kingdom realm. There's something that's changing in this transition where the earth and everything in it is beginning to yield to God's kingdom realm. So we track with me now because Jesus is taking this to the next level with his followers when he instructs them that he says the kingdom is no longer just coming. It's not a season that's budding. But he says here in Luke 10, when you enter into a town, a new town or a community or your workplace or your church, when you enter into a new experience with different people and you've been welcomed by these people, Follow these rules. Now, this is pretty specific. Jesus said, when you meet with new people and they seem welcoming and they're open to and listening to what you have to say, and there seems to be the peace of God in the situation. You with me? When you sense that, do this. Eat eat what is served to you. Be hospitable. And whatever they represent to you as their culture, receive it. Then heal the sick. And tell them, God's kingdom realm has arrived and it's now within your reach. So this is, uh, I'm, I'm challenged by this statement, heal the sick. It's fairly obvious that Jesus had a strategy for kingdom warfare. And it sounds something like, you remember the term shock and awe? He says, start with this. Start with a demonstration of the power of God. And then you can say whatever you need to because you have people's attention. They know that they're in the presence of something different than what they've been accustomed to. Are you with me on this? So he he says, if you are welcome, you have ears to hear, the people have ears to hear, then begin a demonstration of God's kingdom. And he doesn't lay out a whole list of spiritual gifts. He says, just pray for the sick. I'll be there and I'll back up your stuff. So God's kingdom realm has arrived and is now within your reach. What did he mean by it's now within your reach? It meant that the earth is beginning to yield to the fullness of God, and he's come close to you in his rule. Here's a better picture. Let's try this one in Ephesians 1. You with me, all you scholars? Ephesians 1. 
He says, I, and this is verse 19, and Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus in this letter, and he says, I pray you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. And then he says the word then, which implies once that's, you've come to grips with that, then your lives will be an advertisement of the immense, this immense power as it works through you. It's the same message Jesus was saying. There's an incredible power that's available to us. And as we appropriate it by faith, it becomes an advertisement in the Passion Bible is the language of an immense power as it works through you. Now, he goes on to say, by the way, this is the same power that resurrected the dead Christ. So whatever power it took to raise a dead person lives in us. And he said, and it exalted him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. Okay, so, and he goes on to say, and, and the key word here, in the, at least in this translation, and now, not simply someday in heaven or in the sweet by and by or eventually in eternity, but now, he is exalted as first above every ruler, authority, government, and realm of power in existence. That's the same that thing that Jesus told us in Matthew 28. I've been giving power over everything. Everything you can imagine, I have authority over that. And now I give that to you. And I'll be with you till the end of the age. And so, and it goes on to say, and he alone is the leader and source of everything needed in the church. He alone, Jesus alone is the source of everything that's needed in the church. Not better programs, not better marketing, not better sound equipment, not any of the things we think are most important. But it, he says here, he is the leader and source of everything we need. God has put everything beneath his authority. And Christ has given him, and Jesus Christ and has given him the highest rank above all others. All that is a prelude to this one thing. Because that's not all. He says, and now we, his church, are his body on earth. Just he told us in Matthew 28, we are now the carriers of this presence, of this power. We now have sole custody of this incredible power. And so going back to verse 19, I just want to repeat, we see Paul is painting a word picture here of how this kingdom thing, now thing works. I, will pray, I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made to you through faith. So there's a criteria. In order to access this power, it requires people who believe in that power and believe that they have access to it. They have the authority to call on it. Then our lives will become this advertisement of this immense power as it works through us. Now, the single most impacting work of the kingdom is God's power working through his people. And the answer is that it's all accessed and taken hold of by faith. Now don't fold on me just yet because you know what? We're all in the same place. We all lack it and need it, don't we? But I have good news. The, the message gets much more encouraging. So here's the question though. Faith in what? 
I believe we can find the answer in a story Jesus told in Matthew 17. And it goes like this, and this is, and so let me say the whole thing before you dial, dial out off. It says, there's a desperate father who comes to Jesus with a story of a demonized son. And he says to Jesus, I brought him to your followers, but they weren't able to help him. Can anyone identify? Have you ever prayed for someone earnestly and not seen anything happen? In fact, they may have gotten worse. So here we are, and this man comes to the boss, and he says, your people can't do the stuff. They don't have the goods, and so I've come to you. So what is Jesus' response? Yikes. <laughs> That's my response to what he's about to say. He says, Jesus replied, where is your faith? For crying out loud, can't you see how wayward and wrong this generation is? How much longer do I stay with you and put up with your doubts? Bring your son to me. Now, he's speaking to a generation, not just his followers. He says, we need, to, we need to have a school in this faith thing, so bring him up here. We're going to do this one more time. And so then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was instantly healed. He said, I'm going to show you this one more time. This is how it's done. Now, make a note of this next verse, because... If this had been me, and I had been the person who just prayed, say, <laughs> so Janet and I went on a prayer team together, and we prayed for people, we came back, and, and we're standing there, and this guy shows up, we're going, ooh, this is not good. And so Jesus turns to us and said, where's your faith? I don't know about you, but I would have folded. I might have put on a happy face, but let me tell you, I'd want to disappear from the scene. I would have quietly exited and withdrawn into my sense of failure and disappeared. I don't think that's just me. I think we all feel crippled sometimes and we just want to kind of limp off and not be in the forefront of anything God's doing because we just don't have the stuff. But there's a lesson for the future and I want you to see this as this verse unfolds. I want you to see this. Instead of letting their failure to heal this boy disqualify them from future ministry, they went to the Lord with their questions about their failure. They had a relationship with someone who loved them and they trusted him and they went to him to see what went wrong here. They didn't let that failure cripple them for future ministry. They didn't adopt a new doctrine that explained away their failure and said, oh, God doesn't do that anymore. They didn't say, I don't have the gift of healing because he says we're all supposed to do this. Is that what he said? That's right. And, they, and so they pressed in to ask him what had gone wrong. They knew the problem was not on God's part because he's the one that told them to go do this and he ratified this in the ministry of Jesus. This is the model of Christianity. And he's saying, the problem now is not with me. The problem is with your faith. Fortunately for us, verse 19 tells the rest of the story. And this is the God we serve. Later, and I put in parentheses a Bob quote, after they had gathered their courage, <laughs> the disciples came to him privately and ask, why couldn't we cast out the demon? 
So how did the Lord respond? Was it in anger and disappointment or frustration? Did he just lay into them because they were just terrible students? No, he instructed them in a better way. He said, let me go through this with you again and let's practice this again because this is something that comes from maturity and experience and pressing in and coming to me and asking what's wrong. Am I right? Okay. So he told them it was because of your lack of faith. I promise you, if you have just a little bit, if you have faith inside of you no bigger than the size of a small mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move away from here and go over there, and you will see it move. There is nothing you couldn't do. Hmm. So if God's power was made available to them through faith, then what was the problem with their faith? Well, I have a theory. And, it's, and I think biblically it can be proven, but it's also my own experience, and so I'm going to speak to myself. Okay? So if the answer was discovered, I think, in verse 19, why couldn't we cast out the demon? They asked. And his response, the question was, what they were asking is, what is wrong with my effort? What is wrong with my ability? Not talking about the power that lived within them. They're asking, what is it about me that can't do this? Well, there's everything about you that can't do this. It was never about you doing this. It was about something else totally different. See, the disciples weren't fully mature in their faith, were they? You can say, that's right, Bob. And they were limited by this, their view, by their own limitations, their own abilities. They saw their limitations as being God's limitations. And there's where their faith stopped, was the length of their abilities. See, their faith still needed the Lord's nurture and encouragement and more. Go try it again. Practice under His watchful eye. Amen? Amen. This is the God that we serve. But to their credit, they didn't give up and call it a day. <laughs> I have before. I've had seasons of calling it a day because I failed. But the good news is, <laughs> um, anyway, back to their story. Not because they were determined. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get to that in a minute. It wasn't, um, they were determined to overcome their fear of failure. And because of the goal of the kingdom and their investment in this relationship with Jesus, they could never go back to who they were. They had to come to him and say, what's wrong with us that we can't do what you do? You've told us to do this. You've encouraged us. You've instructed us. You've demonstrated it. And yet, we can't do the thing. They were totally invested in the message of the kingdom. And they admitted the truth to Jesus. They absolutely refused to allow that failure to disqualify them. I think it was Francis Frangipane. In fact, I'm sure I pulled the quote up. He said this. You never fail one of God's tests. You just keep taking it until you pass. <laughs> and every test is an open book test. You can go to the Bible and find the answer for every problem. And if you have trouble finding it there, you can always ask the teacher. You get it? So we see from Scripture that both Jesus and Paul 
taught with great wisdom and power and authority, didn't they? But that wasn't their go-to in their golf bag. (laughs) They didn't just rely on their ability to teach. Jesus said, I'm going to demonstrate the way this works, and I want you to understand this is the way it will work for you. Each of them validated their message with power. Miracles and healings were the stuff that opened the eyes of unbelievers, not arguments or intimidation or anything of this world. It's the power of God that opens a heart to the message. Don't we know that by now? We're the people that happen to. Here's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. My brothers and sisters, when I first came to you to proclaim to you the secrets of God, I refused to come as an expert, trying to impress you with my eloquent speech and my lofty wisdom. For while I was with you, I was determined to be consumed with one topic, Jesus the crucified Messiah. Now, he says, I goes on, so now hear this. I stood before you feeling inadequate. Hmm. Can, you, can you feel that? I stood before you feeling inadequate, filled with reverence for God and trembling under the sense of the importance of my words. You've been there, haven't you? You know how important this is. People's lives for eternity are at stake, and we tremble with the importance and significance of this. He says, the message I preached and how I preached it was not an attempt to sway you with persuasive arguments. Never. Even in Athens, when he talked to all these philosophical brainiacs, he just said, let's take it back to the cross. Let's take it back to, I knew a man who was resurrected from the dead. See, he didn't rely on arguments to try to influence them in their logic. For God intended, and, but I, instead of these persuasive arguments, but to prove to you the almighty power of the whole, God's Holy Spirit. So he said, for God intended your faith not be established on man's wisdom, but by trusting in his almighty power. Now Jesus addressed this rule of God question, theme, in Luke 17. Some, some followers, um, some Jewish religious leaders came to him and they posed this question. And they said to him, when will God's kingdom realm come? And they were thinking this political social revolution that was going to establish Israel as predominant nation in the world. That's what they're thinking. This is their mindset. When is it going to come? And Jesus responded, this is brilliant. God's kingdom does not come simply by obeying the law, or by waiting for signs. The kingdom is not discovered in one place or another, for God's kingdom realm is already expanding within some of you. So God's kingdom is here. It's within grasp, and some of you already have it in you expanding. It's growing and taking on maturity and, and beginning to focus you on the important things of life, beginning to refocus you, to begin to redefine your thinking. There's something happening inside of some of you. The kingdom has come within you. 
So what he means by this already expanding within you, the, the Apostle John said it this way. He says in 1 John 3, he says, everyone, <laughs> this is going to get you. Everyone who is truly God's child will refuse to keep sinning because God's seed remains within him. And he's unable to continue sinning because he has been fathered by God himself. Now, I've heard this taught with some really harsh judgmental perspective. But he's not seeing what I've heard from religious people and the legalist. In other words, he says, it will become increasingly uncomfortable for you to continue to sin because I'm expanding within you and there will be no room for it in the end. So you might as well just get ready because that thing that has you doesn't really have you. You just believe that it does. A new season has arrived and his rule is prevailing and possessing the land of your heart. Something is growing within you. You are pregnant with the kingdom of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Colossians 1.27. And it's Paul's message about something called the great mystery. Colossians 1.27. He says this. Now, see if this doesn't bear out what I just told you. Living within you is the Christ who floods you with an expectation of glory. There's something going on inside of you that's divine and that's growing this mystery of Christ embedded within us becomes a heavenly treasure chest of hope filled with the riches of glory for his people. And God wants everyone to know it. Now, I would say that indeed, this Christ is embedded with us and nothing is impossible for him. But for us, in our inability to drive out demons, it will always be that way. Because the power is within you is what God wants to release. It's not your ability or your lack of faith. The Holy Spirit had to come upon Jesus at his baptism. And of all the people that the Holy Spirit would have to come upon, you would think it wouldn't be Jesus. But he says, watch this. I'm going to demonstrate this. I don't need this. I'm demonstrating this for you. So you'll know that you need this experience because it's the power that will make you become the person of destiny. He confessed that he was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to do anything that was in the kingdom. What makes us think we're any different? Now we believe that he lives in us. We believe that nothing is impossible for him. So what keeps us from believing and releasing the power of the Holy Spirit into the ministry that sees people's lives changed. We just need to practice. We need to press in. We can't be casual about this and say, well, come what may, and sit on the couch. Okay? That's the hardest word I'll give you <laughs> because I'm speaking to myself. Every day I have to press into this. In the weeks to come, I'm going to be talking to you about how can we practice this in a way that creates an environment where we can fail and be okay, okay? So in light of this information, two questions remain. And they're the same two questions are the most important two questions in the Bible, and they came at Pentecost. 
And the people stood in front of Paul, Peter, and they were totally grieved over the fact they just realized they had crucified the Messiah. And their first question is this, what does this mean? What have we done and what does this mean? So we have to ask ourselves in the weeks to come, what does this mean? And we'll follow it with the next question, what must we do? We always turn to the Lord. Even in the midst of success or failure, and we turn to him and say, what does this mean and what must I do? These are the two questions we're going to begin to practice over and over and over again. We're going to stop and turn and ask him, what does this mean and what must I do to everything we encounter? Can we practice that together? So what we're going to do, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to pray that God would begin something here that would begin to stir this person of Christ that lives within us. So he wants out. <laughs> he wants out. And he wants out through you, not out of you. He wants to express himself to people in a gifted way that's full of power so that you can speak the message of the kingdom. You with me? So would you let me pray for you? Okay. By the way, this will be the same prayer that Mary prayed in response to the angel. What does this mean and what must I do, she said. Right? And then she ends with this. She says, well, as his servant, I accept whatever he has for me. And may everything you've told me tonight, Bob, come to pass in my heart. Amen? So let me pray this over you. Father, thank you for this message. I pray, God, in its infancy and its simplicity, all it means is that we are people who will not be turned away by failure. We are people who are determined to access the kingdom for the sake of the people who are lost, for the people who are, who are dying and sick and, and uh, encumbered with all manner of afflictions, of fin uh, um, um, everything in their lives, Father, that's gone wrong. We have a message of power and words of life. Now help us with our fear of failure because we admit that we have it. We confess it and we ask you to heal us of this as we move through it with what faith we bring. Birth greater faith in us that we might release power in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.